color socialites walk away with a bit of confliction from today's episode? Ah, this is a good one. When somebody absolutely loves their religion, but someone else absolutely hates theirs, it creates this unavoidable religion collision. Hmm. Welcome to Socialite Crime Club. You're invited to indulge in exceptional storytelling. Delight your insatiable desires for scandalous schemes and criminal conspiracies. Socialite Crime Club, recounting misdeeds. We're going to start on January 19th of 2020, so fairly recent case. It's about 3 o'clock in the morning, just outside of Farmington, New Mexico. Do you know where Farmington is? Yes, I do. It's a very, very small town. I don't know that I'd ever appreciate living there as much as where I do now, but I'm sure it's lovely. It's in the Four Corner region, so it's up in the upper northwest corner of New Mexico, right where it borders to Arizona, Utah, and Colorado. It is a very small town, and not only is it a small town, but where this case is going to start is four miles east of that small town, so it's even outside of Farmington. Super small area. What is the population of this town? Of Farmington? No, the area that we're going out east of Farmington now. Oh, it's like eight. Oh. It's very small. Okay. Why do you do that shit to me? Well, I thought you'd know. <laughs> so San Juan County Sheriff's Department receives a 911 call around 3 o'clock in the morning reporting a missing person. And the missing person is a 27-year-old woman identified as Sasha Krause. And Sasha has been gone for about six or seven hours now. She was last seen around 7 p.m. And she had left. There's these buildings at this location where she lives at her place of business. And we'll talk about this in a minute. And she drove about 150 yards to this little church and she was never seen again since she left that church. There's a curfew here. So she has to be back at a certain time. So when her roommates realize the light that they had left on for her was still on and she wasn't there and it was after curfew, they knew something was wrong. She works at Lamp and Light Publishing. And what Lamp and Light Publishing is, it's a Mennonite publishing company. So they take Mennonite scripture and they produce all kinds of books, but they do those books in English, Spanish, and French. Our missing person, Sasha, worked for Lamp and Light Publishing, where she would actually translate different books into Mennonite scripture, both English, Spanish, and French. So she spoke three different languages. Super smart. Okay. There's a house on site where all of the workers for Lamp and Light live, and it's kind of connected to this bigger building where they work. And And this is all connected with the publishing company as far as what they do for a job. Correct. Lamp and Light. The reason Sasha is in Farmington, New Mexico, is she is an employee of Lamp and Light Publishing, where she actually helps translate books uh, for Mennonite. Mennonite scripture. What languages did she speak? English, Spanish, and French. Oh, wow. Yeah, smart, smart girl. Okay. The the Mennonite church for Farmington is literally 150 yards up the road. And this is a very isolated little area. So you could pull out of the parking lot of Lamp and Light, drive 50, 75 yards up the road, and then pull into the church. It is pretty close to each other, right? So I'm going to take a gander that Farmington, New Mexico is a very Mennonite populated area. Not really. It's actually on the reservation. So it's more Navajo. Uh, reservation, but apparently there is a Mennonite community there. I don't know why Lamp and Light chose Farmington, New Mexico, but but that's where they're operating out of. Okay. And Sasha's very talented. She could actually go to church services mm-hmm. where she could sit next to people who don't speak English and she could translate the sermon in real time, like in their ear. Wow. So yes, she's very respected. She also teaches Sunday school there. So she does a little Sunday school teaching. I've got a little picture here for you. And what this picture is showing is the the building kind of down at the lower right corner is the Lamp and Light Publishing. And that big white building is the actual publishing company. And then you see there's like a little house that's attached to it. Yes. That's where she's living in that house. And then the red line, I drew the path, if you would, that she would drive to go up to the church, which is up the kind of the top left there. And where the red line in is pretty close to where she parked that night. So around 7 p.m., she leaves the publishing company and she drives her car up to the church and she went up there just to get a couple of books. She had just eaten dinner with one of her roommates. She gets back to her room. She's preparing for a Sunday school lesson that she's going to give the next day. This is a Saturday night. So she tells her roommate, hey, I need to run up to the church to grab one of a, a book or a couple of books. Okay. Drives her car up there, 
stays up there for a while. Her roommates are getting ready to go to bed. They leave a light on for her. They've got to meet curfew. It's very mm -hmm. strict. And they go to sleep. About 1.30 in the morning, one of her roommates wakes up, notices the light is still on, and immediately thinks, oh, something's not right. So you may have mentioned this, but what time is curfew? I think it's at 10. Okay. Sasha never misses curfew. She is extremely devout. They don't get any more devout. So the roommate immediately goes almost into a panic. If she's not in her bed at 1.30 in the morning, something is wrong. So she wakes up the other roommate. They end up calling, I believe it's the owner, uh, some the major person there at Lamp and Light and re basically reporter missing at that point. They end up calling the San Juan Sheriff's Department. They come out, they send a couple deputies out and they start this missing person investigation, if you will. And the car that she has that she's driving to the church is her own vehicle. It's registered in her name. It is. And it's left behind. There's no signs of a struggle anywhere. There's nothing tipped over. There's nothing out of place. Her car is there. Everything that she typically has is there. Okay. So it, it it's also odd that she wouldn't have left without taking her car, without taking her, her Bible, for example. Her phone is missing, so they don't know where her phone is at. But other than that... So where did they find her personal belongings, like her Bible and things like that? Were they just left in her room? In her room. Like but she never everything went to that she left with to the church is gone. Right. And this is completely out of character. And like I said, you have to understand, extremely devout. This isn't, hey, did Sasha get weird and decide to leave the church? There was no indication of that. So they were really concerned. And do we know how how long she's been working in this lamp and light? A couple light? years at this point. So she's been there a while. Like she's very established in the area. I've got another picture here that I'm putting up now that shows a little better perspective of where the residence is and then where the church is. But what I want to show here, because it's going to be important later on, it kind of sets in this little valley. So there's mountain ranges on both sides. So you can kind of see the, the mountain behind the church there. And it actually has lamp and light and white rocks up at the top of that little mountain. Oh, okay. I see that. Kind, kind of interesting, right? Yeah. And then on the other side where this picture is taken is another mountain. So it sets in this little valley and there's only what, maybe a dozen houses around maybe. that little area. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty small area. Now there's a couple things. If you're not familiar with the Mennonite religion, we should probably just touch on, we'll, we'll come back to some of these as we go through this case, but they're very restrictive on technology. Mm -hmm. Technology has to serve a purpose right. in line with their teachings to be used. Right. A lot of them are farmers, tractors, no problem. It serves its purpose. But cell phones and internet is used sparingly as it relates yes. to some type of education or pursuing yes. some type of quality of life that follows the religion. And while I might not agree to them as far as the extent that they go, I would agree that a lot of the internet and TV brings a lot of filth in your house. <laughs> And that is basically where they, they draw the line is they don't allow TVs because they think it brings filth into their home that they just right. don't approve of. Right. So there's a lot of technology that they just simply don't support. But yes, you can have a cell phone as long as it's within the teachings, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, they are very literal in their interpretation of the Bible. And we're going to get into this a little bit because I really think it plays into this case. Okay. But they take a very, very strong anti-violence stance. And this includes participating in the law enforcement world or the military. Mm -hmm. So if you're born into the Mennonite religion, you're a son or a daughter, and later in life you decide to become a police officer or you be join the military, it it's becomes, an issue. Yes, it's very contradicting. It is. And they are kind of the original OG, the original gangsters of defund the police movement. Right. Well, they have been since the 15 and 1600s, from what I understand, because they were so persecuted by government at the time. Correct. They they take their stance on not supporting violence to a government level as well. And they don't support any entity within the government that in any way enacts violence, whether it's self-defense or not. They just don't believe in that. Right. They want to be very peaceful people in what they believe. But I, from what I've read, it, it almost becomes to the point of anarchism almost and how much they believe they want nothing to do with government. They don't think government should Correct. have any control over any part of any individual's life. Yeah. Every once in a while, they'll butt head with government entities because they don't recognize the entity. Now, in this case, there was some testimony. And I, I want to talk about this because it was a moment where I'm like... That is really interesting. I didn't really understand the nonviolence piece. Not saying that everybody needs to enact violence, but I was listening to some testimony in this specific case where somebody was articulating their belief in nonviolence. They would allow themselves to be killed by somebody before they would defend themselves. And the prosecutor actually asked him, can you please explain why you would do that? Mm -hmm. And the person said, well, I know that I'm saved. 
I know what's going to happen to me in the afterlife and I'm very comfortable with it. Okay. But if you want to kill me, I know you're not. And I know you'll be damned to hell for the rest of eternity. And I would rather you kill me and me go get what I believe is going to happen after I die than me defend myself, you die, and now you spend all eternity in hell. So it's an epitome of good versus evil. I'm literally doing you a favor by letting you kill me because if I defended myself and I stopped you and in that stop, I potentially killed you, I'd be damning you to hell for eternity. And that individual would never have the opportunity to see the light. Kind of interesting, right? It is interesting. I don't yeah. know that I agree with it, but it's it's interesting. Yeah, I'm not a turn the other cheek guy. It's anyway. worth considering. Right. So to cooperate or not cooperate. And the reason I wanted to lay this little bit of foundation here is when we get a missing person who's closely associated with the Mennonite Church, there's some issues in reporting do they report it to law enforcement? Do they trust law enforcement to take the report? Do they actually cooperate with law enforcement? And it's kind of touch and go in this case. They are going to report it. Law enforcement's going to take the missing person report, but a lot of them won't consent to different interviews. They won't allow an investigation. They're very anti-law enforcement involvement, period. Now, when you say they won't allow an investigation, is it they won't allow the investigation to happen with giving their own statements and potentially what happened to her or Correct. knowing about her statements consent i wouldn't expect any of them to give law enforcement consent to search anything like you're going to do everything through search warrants which i understand but at the same point it, it can't harm the investigation a sure. little bit it also is hard for normal people and i'm using the word normal very sparingly here but if somebody doesn't understand the mennonite religion it could appear that they're trying to hide something because mm -hmm. if this girl legitimately is missing and you are a friend and employer you care for her why would you not cooperate with the investigation right not understanding the cultural ideals of mennonites right is her family with her here or is she purely on her own working on her own 100% on her own. Okay. So they're going to work the first part of this investigation. They get a little bit of a suspect lead, and it's a neighbor who's also Mennonite who's just a little weird. Okay. I watched an interview with him, and he is kind of weird, but nothing really develops there. About 30 days in, it's a cold case. She just vanished. They don't know what happened to her. They have no leads on what she may have done or where she went. Mm -hmm. There's just really nothing to act on. What were they looking at with this neighbor? He was really close to her, and he had said some things that just tipped a couple people off that that seems like a weird relationship. Okay. And watching the interview, it was. Like, he was very emotional during the inter the relationship. He was crying a lot. And he took a liking to Sasha because she wasn't born into the religion. And I didn't understand this, but it came up a couple times in this case. If you're born into the religion, you're almost given more status than somebody who converts to the religion. Mm. And it seems like that's a really big item of contention for it's people. It's like being a muggle in yeah. Harry Potter's world. It's just not accepted as easily when you're a muggle, a non, you weren't born into a magic family. You're just magical in a non-magic family. And then you get to go to Hogwarts. You wouldn't understand. Never mind. Yeah. So she was a muggle. <laughs> February 22nd, 2020, a month after she was reported missing, there is a camper in the Sunset Crater Volcano National Park who's out gathering firewood who comes across what appears to be a person. The camper mm -hmm. calls to this person, ma'am, are you okay? Are you okay? She doesn't answer. The lady just freaks out and she's very emotional about this. She contacts the ranger station. The ranger station comes out there and they find a dead body. Now there's some things I need to explain to people about the Sunset Crater Volcano National Park. It was created by a volcano. <laughs> That's why they call it Sunset Crater Volcano National Park. And it's cinders. So what happened with this about a thousand years ago, this volcano erupted and it erupted with such force that it just blew all this lava up into the air. And as that lava came back down, it forms these little tiny lava rocks called cinders. So although we're up in the mountains and there's pine trees, it's very flat and it's not normal dirt or what you would think of a forest bed, if you would. Okay. It's this really rough cinders. Hmm. And I have some video here. This is taken from the body cam from the park rangers who actually went out to investigate where they they found her. And I wanted you to see the cinders here and how it looks a little bit different than what you might think yeah, of a normal very, forest. It's a different color of soil for sure. Yeah, well, it's these little tiny rocks, these lava rocks. And now the next thing they're going to come across, you're going to see here in a minute is drag marks. And leading up to Sasha's body are these drag marks. 
and it appears mm-hmm. that somebody drugged Sasha to the area that they locate her, and that's her heels that are digging down in the, the cinders that you see there. Oh, interesting. So those are basically just an imprint of her feet dragging along the right. soil there. And it's it, it's all the way from the roadway to where they actually find her body. And how far was it from the ro- roadway to her body? Uh, I want to say like 50, 75 yards, maybe. So okay. half a football field, maybe. It's a and, but she's not concealed at all. Like the person okay. who drags her out there just kind of dumps her. In fact, I have a, a picture coming up here in a minute that you sure. can see here. And so okay. we're looking at Sasha here. She's wearing a dress, kind of this bluish purple dress, mm-hmm. handmade, very customary Mennonite apparel. Okay. She has this white fleece jacket on, and she has black shoes and black socks on. And she's face down. What you're seeing right here is she's actually face down. Her hands are underneath her. Is this how they found her? How the This is exactly how the camper found her when she was looking for firewood. Now, it is January-ish when her body is dumped there. It's now middle, late February. This is Flagstaff. It's 8,000 feet. It's been freezing on a regular basis. It's snow. It's very cold. So her body is pretty well preserved. It, mm-hmm. It's not in terrible decomposition. We'll talk about that more as we go. But the other things they notice right off the bat when they start processing the scene, Mennonites wear, Mennonite females wear a head bonnet. They wear this little bonnet on the back of her head. Mm-hmm. It's like the meshy looking ones. They kind of look like mesh or is it? No, this is more of like a solid fabric okay. that that's sitting there and okay. it's missing, which is very abnormal for Mennonites. Sure. Okay. She wouldn't have just taken that off. Mm-hmm. She's also missing her underwear, which I think is safe to say. She would always have her underwear on. Yeah, she's not going to leave the church without her underwear. Like, I think that's... I don't think she's going anywhere without her underwear on. Correct. It's a very safe uh, statement there. So I've got a couple pictures. This one's from the side to give you a little bit better perspective of of exactly how they find her. And then from there, imagine her being rolled over onto her back. So the next picture you're going to see here is her hands. You're looking at her stomach, pelvic area. Her hands are duct taped and it's a really unique duct tape too. It's like so this little checker pattern. she's on her back right now because I see the zipper of her jacket. Correct. She's on her back. You're looking at her chest, stomach, pelvic area with her hands bound there. And if you're listening to our podcast, you, you should jump over to YouTube on this one and look at some of these pictures mm-hmm. if you want a better description. Now, the ground was frozen. So when they rolled her over, that's why you see some of the dirt and the pine needles stuck yeah, to her Yeah, it almost looks there. like she's grasping on to dirt and pine needles there. Yeah, it's just because it's all frozen to her there. But that duct tape is super unique. It's like a checkerboard pattern duct tape. Well, looking at it from right here, it almost looks like a piece of fabric or a necktie wrapped around her hands. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's duct tape. Interesting. That is really unique. Now, the deputies, when they find her, they're obviously going to process the scene. She's taken to the medical examiner's office, and then one of the deputies just sits down at the computer and starts doing internet research. Like, okay, she's pretty uniquely dressed in a very religious garb, if you will. Mm -hmm. Are there any religious people missing at this time, and he finds this flyer that you see here for Sasha Krause. And they've actually got it up to a $50,000 reward for a missing person. This is out of the San Juan County Sheriff's Department. Hmm. And there's enough similarities that they're almost immediately, okay, we right. I, we found Sasha here. Was her face well-preserved enough that they could match her with this missing person photo? It was. Well enough that it was similar enough that we believe this is the person. Obviously, they're going to take fingerprints. They can do DNA. There's a lot of things to confirm it. But they felt pretty sure early on this was Sasha. Through scientific testing down the road, it is her. So they've confirmed that this is the individual. Now, a lot of people think gunshot wounds are really easy to find. You'd be surprised. I had this case. I've got to talk for just a minute. Very, very rural Arizona. Camper. And deputies are called to this campsite where they find this camper who's deceased and he's kind of leaning up against a tree. So his body's on the ground, but his head and neck area is kind of leaning on the back of the the base of a tree. And he's dead. They think he probably had some type of a natural death. Mm -hmm. So they package him up. They send him to the medical examiner's office. They package up his camp. They impound everything. The medical examiner, three or four days later, starts to do an autopsy. And the phone call that I got, quote, I'll be goddamned if they didn't find a bullet in his head. They never actually saw it when they They didn't look. Yeah. And what people don't realize, especially 22 caliber, if you get shot in the back of the head with a 22 caliber bullet, it typically will not exit. So it's in the cranial cavity, if you will. And the hole is very, very small. And with a little bit of decomp, it's very hard to identify that hole or that blood. And I've had a number of cases 
where somebody's come across a dead body and it isn't until the medical examiner, specifically x-rays, that people realize, oh shit, there's a bullet in that person. Right. <laughs> and it of course changes the entire investigation. So is it typical that a 22 caliber bullet won't exit the body at all anywhere? Or is it specifically cranial? In large mass. So if you got shot in the chest, it probably wouldn't exit. If you got shot in the meaty part of your thigh, probably not. In your hand, yeah, probably so. And the, the reason for that is there just isn't enough mass behind that bullet to carry that force to actually exit the body. It loses so much of that inertia mm -hmm. on the initial penetration. So in this case, when they take her in for a medical examination, they're going to do an x-ray of her head and they find she has a 22 caliber wound to the back of her head the bullet is just below her like her tongue area just in front of your your throat below the tongue and that's and where slodged. it came to rest yeah it came to rest there but it went right through her spine it, it killed her immediately okay. uh, she also has an acute injury and i'll explain why we use the term acute she has blunt force trauma to the back of her head to the point it, it fractured her skull so before she shot in the back of the head Somebody hits her in the back of the head with something really hard, enough to fracture her skull. Could anyone identify the shape of what potentially struck her in the back of the head? It's consistent with the butt of a rifle. Hmm. So potentially whoever shoots her, hits her with the gun, she goes down and then shoots her or in some order thereof. The word acute, the reason we use acute injury is it happens very close to the time of her death. And how they can tell is when those injuries happen, her heart is beating because there's, there's actual blood flow that is impacting that injury, but there's no healing process at all. So the time of the injury and time of death are very, very close, but she's alive with the injury and then she dies very quickly afterwards. Do you think it's worth talking about what that actually looks like during an autopsy? Well, it depends. A lot of times you will reflect the skin. And what I mean by that, they'll pull back a layer of the skin and they're looking at the tissues underneath the skin for some type of bruising. And anytime you get a bruise, you start to get bleeding in that area almost immediately. But they can gauge what level of bruising is there by a timeline. So once I pull that skin back and I look at that bruise, I can tell very quickly, okay, that bruise is probably three or four or five days old. Mm -hmm. Or I see the injury here and there's no bruising yet that injury is extremely fresh from the time of death. That makes sense. Sure. So in this particular case, her cause of death is a gunshot wound to the back of the head, also significant blunt force trauma to the point of fracturing her skull. Okay. So now, because they found her at Sunset Crater National Park, if I didn't explain, this is in Flagstaff, Arizona, or just outside yeah, of Flagstaff, Arizona. Uh. So Coconino County Sheriff is gonna take over this investigation because they actually have the body. So that's who has jurisdiction now sure. on the murder. They're going to start looking at Sasha's phone. And what they find is that Sasha's phone leaves the area of the church around 7.30, 8 o'clock that night, and it goes west into the Four Corners region. And people may not recognize this right off the bat when I say Four Corners region, but anybody who's seen Forrest Gump, remember we went on the long run? Yeah, that's the street that he ran down. And he actually, you can see all the mountains in the back. They've actually made that a national monument now. It's called Gump Point, <laughs> kind of crazy. Uh, but yes, it's not too far from that particular location. Okay. And it's this Four Corners area. So you can see her phone traveling out west. It travels from New Mexico. It appears to travel into Arizona, and then it just disappears off the, the network. This is a really good little piece of information because we know where her phone is active in Farmington or just outside of Farmington. And then we know where her body is dumped some 150, 200 miles apart from each other. It allows us some things that we can do investigatively. Was there anyone that she had been communicating with on her phone that was out of the ordinary or anyone that she was communicating with that anyone on the compound didn't know? perfectly normal communication. Once she leaves the compound, she doesn't communicate with anybody, voice or text. So there's nothing in the phone records themselves that help with this case, other than seeing that when she leaves the area, she's headed out west. So the first thing that we do, and when I say we, we as a company got involved with this case, Coconino County reached out to us as a company and said, hey, can you guys help us with this? And we've right. done a lot of training. They were a customer at that time. I looked at part of this case. We also had an employee at the time, Sev Dishman, and he's the one who actually testifies on this case. His testimony is on YouTube, by the way. You can watch it. It's actually pretty funny. He does a great job. He does. What's really funny about Sev is he's a former special forces operator. Like he's got a lot of combat time in the special forces arena. Mm -hmm. So when he testifies, of course, they have to get into his experience and he has a lot of communications experience under special forces type stuff, blah, 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 blah. So 
explains that. And in the YouTube comments, they're like, this guy's really good, but I'm afraid he's going to kill me at any moment. <laughs> like, it's pretty crazy. Uh, he's kind of a big teddy bear. He is, yeah. He's. Was this, I think this was actually one of his first cases testifying as an expert. Yeah, he retired from the military and we picked him up from the communications experience that he had. And this was one of the first really big cases that he got involved with on the testimony. So I did a great job. So I'm going to walk our audience through how we would do this type of investigation. So we get contacted from Coconino County. They give us the information. The first thing we're going to do, and I have a map here, is I'm mapping where she was abducted from to where she was recovered. And I'm looking at different routes. How could I get from point A to point B? And because we see her phone leave Farmington and go west, we know that she traveled on the route that's highlighted here in the blue. So the next thing that I could do is we have this tool, and it's, it's kind of cool, where I can go into a mapping program and I can physically start to look at, okay, if we know this area in Farmington where she's abducted, can I look at all of the cell sites in that particular area and understand what this cellular network looks like in yes. Farmington? Yes, and you can. Absolutely. And can I do the same thing of where she's abducted? So what you're seeing on the screen here is I'm actually mapping her phone and we're seeing these little overlays are representative of the coverage areas of the cell sites that she's hitting or her phone is hitting as she goes west of that area. Well, the estimated coverage area from a certain side of the cell site. Correct. So we're getting a general idea of that that pattern of movement if you will sure. once I see the cell sites I know which cell site she's communicating within so now all I need to do is I need to go in and look at what other cell sites are in the area and is there any way that I can start to leverage these different cell sites if you will mm -hmm. to look at the type of activity that's on them then I'm gonna go and look at the area that she was abducted at so I've got a little diagram here where I'm drawing a red line showing the route that I believe that she took and then I'm gonna put all of the cell sites that occupy occupy the area along that route. Well, I think what's also great about this is that you're dealing with a very rural area, so there aren't a lot of regular roadways that she would be able to travel along anyway. Yeah, this is why my wife is wicked sexy hot to me, is that she looks at the investigative stuff and she's like, oh, but we're also rural, which is so true. But it took me a long time to figure this out. Yeah, but you're, it. you're so good now because you're like, oh, I see what's happening here. So for those of you listening, what Carrie is really hitting on is that it's hard to drive across the Navajo reservation without hitting one or two major roads. It's There isn't a bunch of different ways to do it. And why that's so important for us is that there's known cell sites that are gonna cover those known routes and it allows us to focus our attention on where it matters. So mm -hmm. in this particular case, basically what we're going to do is we're going to look at which cell sites we know she and possibly the suspect were using when they left. We're going to get a really lucky break here. A lot of places in the United States, you have multiple carriers. So I'd have to deal with Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile, maybe Sprint, maybe some other mom and pop type shops that are, are covering these areas. However, along the Navajo reservation, there's only one carrier. AT&T. Yeah, and they, they go also go through Cellular One, but it's all through AT&T's network. So no matter what phone you have, you're working on AT&T's network when you're on you're the res. Essentially roaming their network. Yeah, which makes it really easy for us. So this diagram that I have here, I'm just simply showing the area one, which is up at the top of the screen. We find a couple cell sites up there that we know her phone hit. So if we're assuming she's with somebody who took her and they have a phone on, their phone may have hit those same cell sites. And then the area two, which is down at the bottom lower left area, is where she, her body's recovered. And okay. the, the concept here is, do we have a suspect who has a phone who also would have that phone hitting these cell sites in area number two? I think something else that you may want to touch on is just because she's not using her phone doesn't mean that her phone isn't connecting to the network. Correct. That's a huge misstatement. In fact, I watched a video earlier today on a, a different super high profile case and this defense expert who is clueless is making statements that the only time your phone will ever register to a cell site is if you're using voice, text or data. And that's just not the case. There's so many things in the background that our phones do now that you may not know you're doing anything with your phone and there is a connection record there. Well, not to mention your phone could actually be connecting with multiple cell sites at any given time. Correct. Which gives us a better idea of where that phone is at. One cell site, we kind of have to guess. Two cell sites, we can start to get dialed in. Three cell sites, we can actually start to get pretty particular about a, a certain area that phone is probably at. If, if anyone's ever scared about maybe getting abducted or being kidnapped or anything like that, 
leave your phone on. As long as possible. one of the surest ways to find you. We have a little logo and a little saying that we throw in some of our short reels from time to time to say, I'll find you. And it's not meant to be creepy. It's meant to be, hey, if we're ever involved in a case where you go missing or people are trying to find you and we get involved, rest assured, we'll find you. Now, Hopefully you're still alive. But the idea there is we get calls all the time where we're helping agencies across the country and we have a very high percentage of we will find you. And if you don't want to be found, turn your phone off. Yeah, I don't recommend that. It's always good to be found. <laughs> not being found. Dead or alive. Bad. It's good to yeah, be found. Not being found is bad. So I want to back up just a second. So what we did here is we took all of the activity from area one the cell sites that are are operating there in area one. We took all the activity that was happening in area two and we hit AT&T with a search warrant. We have a probable cause based search warrant. I have the constitution now, by the way, if anybody wants to say, you gotta have constitutional rights to do that. (laughs) You did pick up the constitution. I don't recall seeing anything about phone tracking in the Constitution. Yeah, it's weird. The forefathers just didn't really uh, clarify any type of electronic surveillance in the Constitution. It's really weird. Uh, <laughs> so I went ahead and read the Constitution because I had a lot of comments recently about my misunderstanding of the Constitution. And I reaffirmed that I actually had a pretty good grasp of the Constitution. Good. So we're going to write a search warrant in this case. And we're going to obtain phone records of all of the activity that was happening in Area 1, all the activity that was happening in Area 2, around the time of the subduction when we believed that her body was done and we find one phone. Okay. Not six, not 12, not a couple we got to figure out. We find one phone that is operating in the Farmington area around the time of the abduction and the same phone that is operating around Sunset National Monument at the time we believe her body was dumped. Do you want to talk a little bit about the process of finding that one phone that happened to be with within the area of hers? Yeah, it's a little difficult. We have these really intense records that we have to sort through and we have to pretty much sort out and look at common devices is what we're looking at. Hey, we know these 5,628 devices connected to some cell site. Show me the device that connected specifically to these five cell sites. It's a little similar to what we did in the poached case. Very similar very similar case. Now, when we find, this is the next piece that I don't think a lot of people realize. Okay, so now we have a device identified, but we know the the serial numbers. We might know the phone number. We don't know whose device that is. We have to write a second search warrant. So we're going to write another search warrant at this point to say, your honor, this device is in the area of the abduction. It's in the area of where the body was dumped. We want 30 days, 60 days, six months, whatever it might be worth of records. When we get those records, I have a little diagram here and we throw those into the system to map where, where is this phone tracking? Automatically, we're going to look at the day of Sasha's disappearance. And this phone is going to start off in Phoenix which seven hour drive away from Farmington. And it's starting actually next to Luke Air Force Base. But then we can watch this phone travel up I-17 across the reservation all the way to Farmington. And when it gets to Farmington, it's actually gonna go through Farmington out the other side and guess where it lands? Oh, at the compound. At the compound. There's a 25 meter hit literally just outside the Lamp and Light Publishing Company. So there's hits also to the right of the screen, a little bit larger. Up on the mountain. Yes, were those prior to the smaller connections? This device is in the area of what you see on the screen right here for over three hours. What time did it arrive? I want to say 4.30, roughly. We'll get into that as we start to get into some of this other stuff. And then it leaves just shortly after 7.30. Um, But it's in the area for three hours. Drives from Phoenix, seven hours, straight to the compound, and then sets there for seven and hours. How? what kind of time frame did you get on this device? How many months or time I want to say they got a couple months, so maybe 60 days worth of and records. And had that di- device ever been in the area before? No, had never left Arizona before in the records that they had. Mm-hmm. So from 4.14, that's when it arrived in Farmington, 4.14 p.m. to 7.45 p.m., so about three hours, three, three and a half hours. Around 7, 7.30 is when she drives to the church parking lot. The phone is going to leave the area. Area around 7:45. So not only is it in the area of the crime, shortly after we know she arrives in the area she's abducted, that phone leaves. Just enough time for her to go in, pick up a couple of books, 
maybe make some connections with people and leave. Right. Come back out and then boom, she's abducted from there. Did anyone see her leave the church? Was there anyone in the church? There's nobody in the church. The church is, she's the only person there. So nobody witnessed any of this, which we'll get to that in the defense side of this. So now what I'm going to look at is when that device leaves, what do we see? And we see that it comes back down through the Navajo reservation into Flagstaff. And just prior to getting to Flagstaff, we get this really nice trail, this little breadcrumb trail that you see here going down the highway and then boom, it hangs a left. And it just so happens to hang a left when it gets to the Sunset Crater National Park. And we can actually see that device drive through the park. And I highlighted that with a little yellow line there. When it drives through the park, one thing we noticed is it gets almost to the, it's a loop. So as that device is coming out of the loop, Mm -hmm. it turns around and goes back into the park. I don't think he realized he was on a loop. And then all of a sudden he realized, oh crap, I'm back to the major highway. And he turns around and goes back into the park. Notice the gap. There's um, some red dots at the bottom left. Yes. And then up at the kind of the middle right. Mm -hmm. And there isn't any red dots in between. That's a dead area. This is really important for this case is we're not going to see any activity in that area because it's a dead zone. There's no cell phone coverage. Is it because of the terrain that was in the area? Correct. The terrain is blocking cell phone signals for that specific area. And I have a white arrow on the screen here where her actual body was found. And that body was found in the area that is a dead zone. So the reason we're not getting these nice, pretty little red hits around the body itself is because it's a dead zone. But if we look at the road of how you get from point A to point B and where the body is, we know this device travels right next to where the body was recovered. If we continue, we can then watch the device as it travels away from the body and is traveling back into Phoenix. And what's interesting here is as this phone comes down I-17 between Flagstaff and Phoenix, it's going to take a little pit stop about an hour okay where does it stop long day it's a seven hour drive there you have to sit there for three hours for surveillance then you seven hour drive back you have to stop somebody's hungry or tired he takes a nap oh yeah he stopped and take a little nap on the way back and then we see him arriving at luke air force base around 650. what's really cool with Hmm. luke air force base it's a controlled base you have to show id to get on the base Hmm. and we can actually time when this device arrived at the Air Force Base, a certain Mark Gooch came through the front gate of the Air Force Base at the exact same time. Interesting. Which is interesting because the AT&T records for this phone also are to Mark Gooch. So Mark Gooch is the owner of this device and appears to be the person who had the possession of the device at that time. That's what's so crazy about these gate logs. It's not a normal case. It's a military base. So as we see that phone come back and there could always be an argument, well, maybe it's not his phone. Maybe he didn't have the phone. Maybe somebody stole his phone. He is getting onto a military base while he has the phone. Right. It's just cooperative evidence. A hundred percent. So I did read something in an article that her body was found with her phone. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think she was found because of his phone. Yeah, there's a lot of misreporting. And I got to be honest, every single case that we've done, when you work the inside of that case and then you watch the reporting that comes out, there's always errors. And I don't think it's intentional. I just think people make mistakes. But yes, her body was not found because of her phone. It was 100%. We figured out Mark Gooch's phone was in Farmington around the time of the abduction. It was at Sunset Crater around the time that her body was dumped. And then we got Mark Gooch's phone and that's what's really gonna open this case up. Yeah, it didn't have to do with her phone. Because Coconino County actually had the gumption to do a cell phone investigation. I've gotta tell you, this detective, Lauren Nagel, bulldog, she would not like like a dog with a bone. She is not going to give up on this case. Sasha could not have gotten a like better detective. I feel like that's a horrible comparison. A bulldog? Yeah, a dog with a bone. I think she's much better than that. Have you ever tried to take a bone away from a dog? Well, have you ever tried to take a bone away from a dog? Yeah, it's you would have the same fight if you tried to take. Well, your dog doesn't (laughs) count. It's a it's a compliment. She is on this case, and there's nothing anybody's going to do. She's very good at what she to pursue her away from this case. She knocks it out of the park, and we're going to get into some of the things that she does here in a little bit. Great. Good. Now, there's a couple things that are great concern that the phone brings out. Okay. He spent just over two hours. At the dump site with her. Two hours at the dump site? At the dump site. That seems so unusual. So when he goes to dump her body, he's there for two hours. I'm assuming she was alive. Do we know? We know that she died very close, if not. In fact, the medical examiner believes she was shot and killed at the site. Okay. where she her body was found. She's not buried. She's not covered up. But she's missing her bonnet. And, and underwear. Her underwear. So we're going to get into this, but some common sense takes him two hours at that site. 
She doesn't have her underwear. She doesn't have her bonnet. He doesn't bury her. What is he doing with her for two hours? And I want this to resonate with our listeners, especially when we get to the end of this story. Well, why would he select her specifically in such a remote location? Oh, we're going to get to that. We don't know yet because we're just starting to get a glimpse into who Mark Gooch is. He's an Air Force mechanic stationed at Luke Air Force Base. He's only been with Luke for, I think, less than a year at this point. He hasn't been in the Air Force very long. I remember when we got the hit with the cell phones, the detectives from Coconino County actually came down and met with us in our office. And I remember sitting down with the detectives and they're explaining everything that they found with the phone records and we're showing them some of the matches and it comes to me, he doesn't know. He doesn't know what we know. And I remember telling both of the detectives that came down, remember, he doesn't know what we know. Use this to your advantage. They couldn't have taken that any better. So they're about to put together a really, really great case. They pull his financials and in pulling his financials, they find that on the 18th, the same day, the the evening next morning that Sasha goes missing, he has a purchase in Kayenta. Kayenta is on the Navajo reservation out in the middle of nowhere between Flagstaff and Farmington. Around 142, he stops at a McDonald's and he orders like, I think it's a double bacon cheeseburger or something like that. Yeah. But, But at 142, we can put Mark Gooch at the McDonald based on his debit card. When you look at the phone records, phone records also show him at the McDonald's. So we're getting a little bit more of that cooperation that this is actually Mark Gooch and his debit card and his phone. We look a little further, that's a long drive, seven hour drive up, seven hour drive back. He's got to stop for gas. He's got a little Volkswagen, so I think it gets fairly decent gas mileage. So he's got to stop for gas. He stops at the Speedway Gas in Farmington, New Mexico, and he puts it on his debit card. So now there's a paper trail actually showing him filling up in Farmington, New Mexico. And did you sync these up with his phone records? Puts his phone is right at the gas station during this time. He lives on a military base, so we can pull video from a military base. And those of you who may be watching who are very critical of how we pull video, guess what? You don't need a search warrant to look at video on a military base. (laughs) You have no expectation of privacy on a military base in public spaces. So was that in the constitution? Yeah, I read it earlier. Um, Anyway, (laughs) so they have video of Mark actually leaving that morning in his car and then also him returning. And this perfectly aligns from when we see the phone leave the Air Force Base and when we see the phone arrive back at the Air Force Base. So you can start to get a feel. This case is getting really good. They actually have video of him returning to his apartment that night on the military base and he's carrying Mm -hmm. something. And notice how he's walking very upright. Yeah, it looks like a backpack. I believe he has the rifle with him right there and he's trying to hide it within a jacket in the backpack and that's why he's he's so upright when he's carrying it, which is kind of interesting. So Detective Nagel is going to be the primary and I love her because she is on this case so well. She works with OSI, which is basically think of as the MPs there at the military base. And they're going to pull him in from work on a random drug test. So Mark Gooch thinks that he's coming into OSI to do a drug test. When he gets there, Detective Nagel from Coconino County is there to talk to him. So she starts the interview. He denies ever leaving the state of Arizona. He doesn't really drive anywhere. He doesn't do anything. And then she slowly starts to confront him with these little pieces of evidence. She does a great job. She knocked this interview out of the park. She let him tell his story to show he's full of shit. He lied about the whole thing. Okay. And then it just, instead of saying, you're a liar, she says, well, what about this and she gives him a chance to correct it and he corrects it well what about this and he corrects it eventually he will admit that he did drive to farmington on this day he drove to the mennonite church on this day because he wanted to see the hours that the church was having services because he thinks he might want to attend church services there and were there any other mennonite churches that might have been closer to him between phoenix and farmington yes yeah, a couple dozen <laughs> Just a few. He was just really interested in this one particular in Farmington. Correct. Oh, the other problem he's got is there is no sign at the Mennonite Church that has their service hours. And you could just call or jump online. And their information for service hours is online? It is. I checked. So it's really interesting that he denies ever leaving Arizona until she confronts this. And then, yep, I was in Farmington. Yep, I was at the church. Did he ever express why he had a particular interest in that particular location? So he used to be Mennonite. He grew up in the Mennonite church. He has a lot of experience with Mennonite religion, and he's looking for a church because he just moved out to Arizona because of his Air Force job being in the Air Force, and he's looking for a Mennonite church. Where was he from? Um, Wisconsin, if I remember correctly. And he's really cooperative throughout the entire interview until Detective Nagel tells him, oh, 
by the way, your brother, Sam in Wisconsin, we have detectives meeting with him right now. They're interviewing him. He's telling us, you don't like the Mennonite church. You have some serious issues with the Mennonite church. Do you want to talk about that? Hmm. I think I need an attorney. He invokes. He stops the interview. Okay. Which is really interesting because at one point, Detective Nagel asked him straight up, were you involved in the abduction of Sasha Krause? Mm -hmm. Did you abduct Sasha Krause? Did you kill Sasha Krause? Very prominent questions. And he's like, no, no, no problem talking about any of that. The minute she brings up his brother, Sam, he invokes. invokes. Really interesting there. That is interesting. Now, I will not say Mark Gooch is a smart kid. Um, he's made a lot of mistakes. He uses his debit card at McDonald's. He uses his debit card at the Speedway gas station. He leaves his phone on the entire time. But now this dumb shit's actually going to take pictures of his route when he drives up to do a kidnapping. So note to self, and I'm sure there's some people who be like, hey, don't educate the bad people. Don't take pictures on your phone while you're committing crimes. It's just fucking dumb. Or on your way to one. Is yes. that a truck on fire? Yeah, so as he's driving up I-17, he passes a semi-truck that's on fire, and that's the picture that's on the screen here. He actually takes a picture of it. So when they interview him, obviously they're going to arrest him. They seize his phone. They analyze his phone. They find these two pictures, which have date, timestamp, and geo coordinates, latitude and longitude of where these pictures were taken. Well, I'm also sure there was some type of police report that was taken about a truck on fire that day as well. Very that easily it. identified. And if you look right over the top, that little blue car, notice there's an exit sign. So it's very easy to figure out exactly where this is. What at. sign? It's an exit. I I can't see it from where I'm at right now, but they probably some. We weird cooperated basin. it, and we were able to show precisely where this is. And then notice the other picture stamp. Francisco Peaks. It had just snowed, so there's a lot of snow up there. Yeah. But again, the dummy takes a picture where there's a sign, which makes it really easy to identify there's the signs exact spot. In both pictures. Both pictures. When we compare these pictures to the cell phone location information, perfect alignment. So now, not only do we have Mark Gooch's car going up there, Mark Gooch's phone going up there, Mark Gooch's credit card or debit card going up there, we also have somebody on the phone taking pictures, documenting historically where he went that day. Right, with other things that could be documented of yeah. what happened during the time yeah, he took Yeah, it's kind pictures. of interesting. So text messages, they're also going to get a bunch of text messages. Now, Mark is the youngest of seven children, and he mm -hmm. is the, the young one. He's got a couple brothers that he's pretty close to, though, Sam and Jacob. Okay. And his text messages with Sam, something very disturbing very early comes out. January 12th. This is the Sunday before Sasha is abducted. So literally the weekend before. He's texting his brother and he says, even this morning surveillance was boring. Just a bunch of old people without much to live for. Clearly not the people we grew up with. Sad to say another disappointment. Well, I'm going to head back to the base. When we look at the phone records, mm -hmm. he's sitting at a Mennonite church in Phoenix when he's sending this text message. So they're just surveilling Mennonite churches? Yes. Does his brother do the same thing? Here's what's disturbing. If I sent you that text message saying my morning surveillance, what would you say? What is a natural reaction? Well, why were you, what are you talking about surveillance? Is this something you do often? Right, the brother does not say that. In fact, the brother says, I really wish I was out there with you so you and I could go get into some shit. What kind of shit are they getting into? Who knows? The Mennonites don't report stuff to law enforcement. You think that's why they're doing this because they know they won't get caught? Or they know that no one will report it so that they could get caught. Correct. I think they are specifically targeting the Mennonites because they know the Mennonites are very hesitant to involve law enforcement, period, no matter what happens. So it's it's interesting. This opens a door. What are we missing? That is scary. When they look at the phone records a little bit closer, the weekend before this, he's at another Mennonite church about an hour north, northwest of Phoenix. He is routinely conducting surveillance. So if we look at the, what happened in January, first weekend in January, he's sitting at a little Mennonite church just outside of Wickenburg, Arizona. Mm -hmm. The second one, he's sitting outside this church and he's documented talking about his brother, but just a bunch of old people with nothing much to live for. The third weekend, he's sitting outside of a Mennonite church in Farmington, New Mexico. But this time he sees a young Sasha Krause come out of the church. Who has something to live for. Who has something to live for. You couldn't have said that any better. Mm -hmm. I've got some issues with Sam at this point. Like, what does Sam know? How involved is Sam in this? And remember, this is when he invoked. So this is where Sam replied back to him that same day. I wish I was with you. We'd find something to do, some shit to get into. And to which Mark responds, exactly. But now it's sad doing anything by myself. 
and taking risks is back to zero. So he's admitting it's sad now because I'm having to do these type of things by myself. Well, what's more sad is we don't know if there's other victims out there who just aren't willing to say anything that somehow something happened to them that these two did. I think at this point it's safe to say there are other victims. They're acknowledging that they're having to do stuff by themselves. They're having to they're not taking risks like they used to. Whether they're a victim of death or some other horrible right. assault, we don't know. Right. So my message, if this gets out, I'm sure a lot of the Mennonites will not be listening to our podcast. But if friends of friends listen, if there's missing Mennonites in the country, we might have an idea who's responsible. Like, reach right. out. Or people that know a Mennonite who was assaulted or hurt in some way, then that's a big deal. But at the same time, maybe they don't consider it a big deal because... Right. It's weird. Yeah, that is weird. Religion collision. So let's talk about the investigation. Obviously, they've they've arrested Mark at this point. They've seized his phone. We're starting to get an idea of these text messages. They do a press release. And what's interesting with the press release, they look at the press release of when they found Sasha's body. And they're looking at history on Mark Gooch now. The next day after they find Sasha's body, he takes his car to get detailed, fully detailed, all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. While he's getting his car detailed, he's texting Sam. He's telling Sam... Hey, getting my car fully detailed. They found Sasha. <gasps> to which Mark responds, well, you can also spray it with disinfectant once they're done. And he's like, no, they're doing a fine detail, shampoo, steam clean. It's all good. But when he leaves the car wash that day from getting his car detailed, stops on the way home, buys bleach. Just pretty damning. And if you're going to buy bleach, buy a shopping cart full of other shit. He just bought bleach. So the receipt, <laughs> bleach, nothing else. At AutoZone. <laughs> right. <laughs> they're Gorditos. <laughs> so there's also a call that we actually multiple calls to Sam. The other thing that just jumps off the page, if you look at the 18th, and if you remember right, the 18th is the day he drove from Phoenix up to Farmington to abduct Sasha. Then to fly. It's a seven-hour drive. He calls Sam five times. It's over 90 minutes worth of conversation between these five calls. He has never done that in the history of these phone records before. Mm -hmm. So it's hard not to believe so there's some Sam stress. knows what's going on. There's signs of stress. Yeah. And that's just the brother, Sam. Let's talk about Jacob. Jacob's the other brother. Jacob's going to text our buddy Mark here. And Jacob starts the text message with, I just gave a Mennonite a ticket. This sounds very cop-ish. Jacob is a police officer with the Virginia State Police. Oh, okay. So he's telling Mark, hey, I just gave a Mennonite a ticket. To which Mark says, fuck yes, I hope you treated him like shit. <sighs> Jacob responds, I did, LOL. Oh. Mark responds, haha, fuck yeah. Jacob, I coughed on him so he would spread corona to the wedding that they're going to, LOL. Mark responds, ha ha ha, that's fucking hilarious. This makes me hate cops. You know, we get, a, I won't say a lot, we get some cop hatred in our comments. And when I first started getting them, I'm like, oh, come on, people, come on, people. And then I see shit like this, and all of a sudden, I agree. Like, God damn it. How simple is it not to be a complete asshole? Right. Obviously, this isn't directly attributed to all of law enforcement. No. I still have a very firm belief there's a lot of really good people who work in law enforcement. Well, with any profession, you're going to have bad apples in any corporate environment Just you work complete in. shitheads. Uh, <laughs> for those of you wondering, uh, Virginia State Police are obviously made aware of this during this investigation. They launch an internal investigation into Jacob, which is what the first step they have to do. As soon as Jacob catches wind that this is out, he resigns. So he's before he could get fired and he would have gotten fired. Jacob will never be a police officer again. Right. Um, and I think it's important to say that because a lot of people be like, oh, just cops being fucking cops. No, you do this shit. You will be fired anywhere in the country. Like it is unacceptable. As long as you're caught. It has to be reported. The, to the masses of America can finally unite in one thing here. When you do this, we have no place for you, no matter who you are. So, right. Uh, yeah, Jacob's gone. Good. But it just kind of gives you an idea of there is this intense hatred between Jacob, Sam, and Mark to Mennonites. And they all grew up in the Mennonite religion, which is really interesting. Well, it is interesting that they all chose professions of, well, at least Jacob and Mark did. What is Sam's profession? That they chose in military law enforcement. I think Sam's just a professional shithead. The other two are military law enforcement. But yes, they go against the grain specifically. The dad's going to testify on this case, mm -hmm. which is a terrible decision we'll get into here in a little bit. He's asked, do you support your son being a law enforcement officer? No. Would you support your son joining the military? No. 
like they're very against this. Hmm. Let's move on to another person. This guy's a good person, so nobody judge him. He's not related to this family. Okay. Jeremiah. Jeremiah also works at Luke Air Force Base. He's a friend of Mark Gooch's before he knows who Mark Gooch really is. And there's a day right after Mark Gooch details his car after Sasha's body's found that he contacts Jeremiah as a friend and says, hey, you live off base, right? Yeah, I live off base. I just found out we can't store guns or personal weapons on base. Can I come store my gun at your house? And mm -hmm. Jeremiah's like, of course you can. And Jeremiah actually has a gun safe. So Mark goes over to Jeremiah's house, drops off the rifle that he used to kill Sasha, unbeknownst to Jeremiah, who puts it in his gun safe. Well, when all of this happens, Jeremiah is watching the news and is like, oh shit, I think I have the murder weapon. So he knows that Mark Gooch is suspect. Correct. He sees the press release of Mark being arrested. So he contacts the military police at Luke Air Force Base, following his chain of command, is like, hey, I think I have this guy's gun. They contact Coconino County. Something really cool is going to happen. Because remember, they don't know what we know. Right. The other thing is Gooch is telling Sam to come and get his phone and to delete all of the history, all of the SD cards and go pick up this rifle. So when he gets arrested, there's a call between him and Sam where he's telling Sam, I need you to get to Arizona and clean up my shit. And I'm sorry, where does Sam live? I think Wisconsin. Okay. I think. That's where the family lives and I think Sam lives up in Wisconsin. I could be totally wrong, but he doesn't live local. He has to come in. Okay. Well, Coconino County is intercepting all this. And they realize this dumb shit is about to come in, pick up this rifle and try to dispose of it, and then get this phone and wipe all this evidence. Let's do a sting. So they swapped out. They seized the original rifle from Jeremiah. They put into evidence. They pull a second rifle out that isn't evidence. They take out the firing pin so it can't shoot. They give it to Jeremiah and they tell Jeremiah, give this to Sam when he shows up. And they actually have some undercover surveillance that I have here. Hmm. What you're seeing here in the blue shirt is our buddy Jeremiah. Red shirt is the brother, Sam. He just took the rifle out of the truck. He's taking it over to his rental car and he's putting it in the back. Notice how upright he was walking. Very similar to that video we saw very, the other very day. Very stoic. Right. It's during COVID time, so they're going to give the little elbows. Boom. Thanks. Thanks. And they take off. Uh, Mr. Red shirt there, Sam is arrested right after this. So Going back to what's really cool that I love that Coconino County did, they could have just passed on this. They could have been like, yeah, whatever. But when you read those text messages and you realize there's more to Sam than just he's the brother, mm -hmm. he's coming to Arizona to pick up a gun. Screw he's an it. accomplice at this point. Let's set up an actual undercover sting here. Let's get him committing a crime. Let's hold his feet to the fire. And they took the time and effort to do that, and I applaud them for doing so. Good. Now, he's going to have to testify against Mark Gooch. He's going to work out a deal. He's going to get three years of probation, which is really nothing. But three years of probation for what you just saw right there. He, they probably should have got him a lot more. Uh, Sam's arrest. He's not going to give up much information at all. He's going to invoke pretty quickly. And then the irony. And I'm not saying for those haters that I'm going to read the comments on. And man, these comments these days. Oof. I'm not saying that I disagree with this. It's the irony that I'm bringing up here. When Sam is talking to the detectives, he stops. And he says, well, you have to understand we have a distrust for law enforcement. Well, no shit. You're a shithead doing terrible fucking things. <laughs> of course you don't. You like should have a distrust to law enforcement. I agree with that. And then he follows it up and says, anything I tell you, you're going to use against me. Again, no shit. <laughs> so he invokes and he will not give any further statements. So Sam is not going to be a cooperator at this point. Later on, he's when he's offered a plea deal to the probation to testify against Margage, he's going to take it. So he testifies in the trial. Obviously, there's overwhelming evidence in this case. The phone data showing the travel pattern, the stops, the pictures lingering up there leaving right after the abduction, the logs from the Air Force gate. Like there's no mm -hmm. doubt Mark Gooch went to Farmington and abducted Sasha. Sure. There's a pattern of Google history or deleting Google history, which is really interesting. So he had an Android phone and Androids collect a lot of location data for Google. In this particular case, every time he did something, when he finished the next morning, he would go in and delete his history of that prior event. Mm -hmm. So even though they don't get the, the location history from Google, they get this deletion history that shows every little thing he's doing when he's going to the Mennonite churches to do surveillance, yeah. he deletes the history. And how often do the average person actually go in and delete everything that they look at on their phone? I can't remember the last time I deleted anything on my phone. I would say I would put myself in a small group of some of the more experienced subject matter experts in this field, in the entire world. I've never deleted my Google history yeah. of all the stuff that I know. I'm not worried about it. I would 
actually really hope that if anything ever happened to me, they figure it out and convict the people that did it based on my Google history. Right. It's a safety blanket. It is a huge safety blanket. For me. And I get some people like, well, I don't want Google tracking me. Touche. That's your right. And I fully appreciate that. But for me, yeah. I like knowing that if I go missing in the middle of the night because my wife got tired of me, there's a mm-hmm. paper trail of people can find what you did with me. Right. Right. Yeah, but they okay. wouldn't. Huh? I'm just kidding. What? Nothing. Who? Go on. Okay, so the weapon recovered. That's the other thing that's really interesting in this case. The rifle. They recovered the rifle. They recovered the round from Sasha's head. It's a match. Now, the defense is going to come in and present a defense expert that's going to say it's inconclusive. They can't say it's an exact match, but they can't rule it out. The state's firearm expert who has way more, like, three times the experience of the defense expert says 100% it's the same thing. So Mm -hmm. the rifle actually is the gun that fired the round. With all of this, obviously, this is a really, really strong case. Sure. The defense is going to make a really interesting decision during trial. They're going to put Mark Gooch's father on the stand. And I think the intent was to show Mark has never shown or exhibited any type of violence or violent history. He's a very peaceful, loving individual. And although he's not current in the Mennonite church, he he was raised in the Mennonite church. Did they just assume that the father would say these types of things? Or did they ever interview the father prior to get... You know, I have to wonder how much cooperation the father gave them. And I, I think there was enough because you could tell part of it, the defense was getting what they wanted. But the father said something and the state prosecutor captured it. He's like, wait a second. So on cross-examination... The prosecutor clarifies, you said something along the lines of Mark's heart being dark. Okay. What did you mean? And the father actually explains, no, in the Mennonite church, you have to be baptized when you decide to be baptized. We don't just baptize kids. You you as an individual have to make a decision. And most of the people in the Mennonite church aren't baptized until at least the age of 12, sometimes much later. But it's an individual choice. Mm-hmm. And they believe it's an individual choice because when your heart turns from dark to the light is when you as a person make the conscious decision to become baptized in the Mennonite religion. And he says on the stand, Mark's dark heart never turned to the light. Like that's the one witness the defense puts up there and they're like, yeah, his heart's dark. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty damning. Yeah, yeah, it was not good. A huge blunder, probably should not have put him on the stand uh, for the defense. So big defense blunder there. The other blunder the defense attorney says, and it's just, it's just dumb. As a juror, I think I would be somewhat offended if I heard this. Mm-hmm. He explains, Mark says some things in the interview with Detective Nagel that are a little bit off, that just don't quite make sense. Okay. And it's because he's guilty. It's because he's trying to hide shit. And it's very right. clear when you watch the interview. Well, not only is he hiding things, but his story is changing because she's Constantly. presenting evidence to him that Constantly. is and, contradictory to his And it's damning. The, the jury watched this interview. So the defense feels like they have to patch this up a little bit and explain, well, hey, here's why you saw what you saw in the defense interview. You have to understand, Detective Nagel, she had months to prepare for that interview. Mark didn't have any time at all. He was just brought in the room and interviewed. He didn't have any time to consider his lies. Yeah, he had no time to explain how he didn't kill somebody who he actually killed. Like, you have to give him some credit here. And I'm just watching this this closing argument of this defense attorney trying to make this statement, thinking that is the dumbest thing you could have possibly said, right. is that somebody who obviously killed this girl didn't have time to prepare for their lies. lies. Yeah, yeah, 100%. It's just poor form. It Poor form. Poor Not form. only for the jury, but also for his client. Well, and I don't know that defense attorneys always realize some things they say can actually be very spiteful. And I hate to say this, juries will convict suspects because they hate them, not necessarily because they're guilty. Right. So defense attorneys, I think, have to be really, really careful about painting this elitist picture of, oh, how dare law enforcement try to interview my suspect without giving him any time to prepare, Mm -hmm. especially when there's this much evidence, like, come on. Right. Both uh, Sam and Mark Gooch are going to be found guilty. Sam gets a three-year probation for his uh, gun attempt to uh, to hide the gun. Our buddy Mark is going to get life, natural life, without the possibility of parole. So he will never be released from prison. He will die in prison. And this is Mark's picture on the Yeah, screen. this is Mark's picture here. He looks very different than he did. He looked like That's... a young, dumb kid in some of the early pictures. Now he looks like an inmate. When was this one taken? I think a year ago. So this is a fairly fresh 2000. 22, maybe 223. That's an interesting haircut, isn't it? Yeah, it's rough. Um, well, at least you don't have to do a lot of 
lot of work to keep your hair nice there. Mm. Uh, the one thing I did notice, um, guess what Mark's job roles are in the prison? Mm, something to do with religion. 100%. He's a chaplain, Bible study. <sighs> the good thing is he has nothing on his uh, trouble log. So he hasn't been in trouble yet. So that's the first for Socialite Crime Club. This is the first that we've ever put an inmate's picture up on the screen who hasn't done more dumb shit in prison. So hey, maybe Mark is reformed and moving on here. A role model prisoner. Role model. Hmm, well, good for him. It is interesting how you began this episode of a religion collision because it really is sad how Sasha was very devout, but ended up being killed by someone who later became devout simply because was the only thing left for them. Well, but yeah, but I think the irony here is that she was targeted by a Mennonite or a former Mennonite because she's a Mennonite. This is somebody who hated their own religion so much. The only way they could express that hatred was to kill somebody who was devout to that religion. And that's fucking disturbing. Right. Well, and there are so many people that over time hate what their own religion has done to them in some way that I think yeah, is... move on. Yeah, but it's such a conflicting thing to think about. So, because there are a lot of people who feel that way, but you're right. Move on. Get over it. Yeah. But good episode. You like it? Yeah. It was a good one. I liked it because it was recent and just moving. It's a really powerful episode. And yeah. I feel for Sasha's family. Oh, hundred percent. And those of you, again, that are listening and not watching, we had a lot of visuals on this one. Probably worth the... Uh, Whenever you get a chance, hit the hit the worth, YouTube page. Yeah, worth, and if you liked what you heard today, if you like sticking around with us and hearing our stories, give us a good rating on Spotify and help us out to become a little bit more known out there in the podcast world. And if you enjoy these shows, please take the time. Give us a rating. We're using the stars, Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. Leave comments. We love comments. We're really trying to plan the next uh, 20 or so episodes right now. And we take a lot into consideration of comments of what people want to hear. So take the time to comment. We do listen and read every one of those. So hit us up. It's hard reading some of those comments sometimes. Uh, I think we're going to have an episode of just reading comments. Yeah. If anybody's <laughs> like that, leave a comment. <laughs> some of we're pretty bad. <laughs> Have a great week.